on the job with Francis Leach and Sally Rugg. It's On The Job, the podcast all about making your working life better. My name is Francis Lynch. And my name is Sally Rugg. And I'm joined today by my cat, Beans. Hey, who's Beans! sitting next to me. Hi, Beansy. She's sitting next to me. And because Francis and I are talking over the laptop and recording at our respective houses and Beans is rubbing her face all over the laptop, I think she likes you. Hi, Beans. I think she's hungry. <laughs> Isn't that the, the sort of the, the the mind trick we play on ourselves about our pets? And I used to have this conversation with my daughter Evie all the time because my late dear dog Remy saw Evie in the pecking order as dogs have hierarchies below him. So he would he would sort of treat her with a little bit of contempt and try to. If I gave Evie a hug, he'd be like nuzzling in, like he'd be like, "What's this?" Or if, you know, he walked through the back door, I'd, I'd, you know, Remy stay, but he'd always try to get in ahead of Evie. He always tried to push in ahead of Evie. And Evie would just say, oh, Dad, you think he loves you, but he just wants food. Yeah. He just wants food and you're falling for it. You're falling for the oldest trick in the book. You think the dog is loyal and loving, but he just knows you're a soft touch for a meal. <laughs> yeah, I think the cats know I'm a soft touch for a meal as well. Now, I might have told this anecdote before, so if I have, stop me. I've got like three good stories nowadays and this is one of them. So (laughs) I have this on no authority but I have read somewhere and internalised it as truth that dogs understand that they are dogs and that people are people or, you know, like that they understand that their people are not dogs, like they are the sort of in charge of the house and you know, you can train a dog to sit and all the rest of it. Whereas cats just see us as big cats, like big, stupid, clumsy cats. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Have I told you this before? (laughs) And so, like I said, I have, I read these, it's probably one of those like articles that have no basis to it, but Apparently there was this study and they were able to sort of measure like whether these domestic animals recognised like their own kin or another. Anyway, and it turns out cats just think that we're big dumb cats and I kind of love that. That sort of cool (laughs) contempt they have for you, not all cats, but some cats have that cool contempt for you that they sort of like will doll out their affections but they'll do it with a sort of with a sense of distance or disdain uh, to you and uh, always with the threat that they could withdraw their interest. Yeah, I, I wonder if that's looking at us just being like, oh, come on, be cool. Like, <laughs> oh, God, stop. Uh, I'm going to go with that theory from now on because anyway, it makes so perfect sense to welcome me. Welcome to On The Job Podcast. <laughs> about dogs and cats. <laughs> well, we're talking about the things that interest us. Welcome to On The Job Podcast, the podcast we talk about cats. Yeah, the cats cast. <laughs> um, but... We talk about the things that we love and we love politics as well and and the ideas around work. And when we're not stroking cats and pretending our dogs love us, we're reading the monthly magazine uh, brought to you uh, each month with the the great thinkers of Australia talking about the big issues. And this week's, or this edition of the monthly, Professor Richard Dennis from the Australia Institute, Chief Economist up there, has written a really important piece, Sally, because what he's done is just lay out Moment by moment, incident by incident, the government's handling of the COVID pandemic, almost to put it on the record because things happen so quickly, the news cycle changes so fast that some of it just gets lost in the wash. And I think the government and Morrison are banking on the idea that we'll forget a lot of the stuff that went on and they can just say, oh, it's over now. Why don't we all just move on? 
and not be held to account for just how shambolic it's all been. So it was really good and refreshing for him and a little bit terrifying if you read it as he lays it all out in graphic detail what actually occurred and in what order and just how big a mess we got ourselves into. Mm, You're so right. People generally tend to have pretty short memories with these sorts of you could call it politics, you could call it governance events on the public record. I think that's understandable. Like we all have very busy lives and, you know, don't necessarily have time to, you know, document everything that happens. But the reason why it's particularly important, as we discussed on the last episode, is that there may or may not be an upcoming federal election. And I saw a really interesting graph this week that I'm also not going to be able to source. I'll see if I can find it, but maybe it was on the website with the cats and dogs information. But I think it was in the Age and Sydney Morning Herald, I think it was a Fairfax graph measuring voters' attitude towards the Morrison government's handling of the pandemic. And it was sort of people listening can't see my hands, but if it sort of like starts, it's sort of in the middle and then it goes down, 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 down. And then in the last couple of weeks, it's like, hmm, uppity up, up, up. (laughs) And my sense is that that might be correlating to like an easing of restrictions and some borders opening, people being able to travel more freely, the weather getting warmer, you know, a bit of more optimism. But yeah, so I I think that these sorts of pieces of work that put things on the record and, and line things all up are so important. They are. And it's a really great piece. I highly recommend you check it out at the monthly. But right now, let's catch up with Bridget Dennis. I sat down with him in Canberra at the Australia Institute a couple of days ago and had a chat about his latest contribution to the monthly magazine on the handling of the COVID 19 pandemic by the Morrison government. Richard, welcome back to On The Job. Great to be here. Out there making trouble again for the government with your latest uh, contribution to the monthly, I see. Yeah, it's a terrible skill being able to read. And uh, (laughs) unfortunately, the Prime Minister's said a lot about COVID, so much that I think nearly everyone's forgotten where we've been. So yes, I took myself deep into every word he said about COVID. Because it's important, isn't it, that we somehow have a chronology of it because the news cycle ticks so quickly and it's easy to lose track of what was said, what promises were made and the consequences of actions that were taken that because so much happens in such a short space of time, seems like a lifetime ago, but they resonate still through everything that's happening. Oh, absolutely. And, and of course, the irony is having spoken about COVID nearly every day for nearly two years, you know, the daily case numbers, the daily vaccination rates, the the big picture was typically lost. And the biggest picture of all is, of course, that it took us longer to roll the vaccine out than it took scientists to invent it. And every target the Prime Minister set was missed. We should have been 100% vaccinated by October. Like, we should be 100% now. Now, it's great that we're 80, but 80 is a lot less than 100. And we, we failed dismally, but to hear the Prime Minister talk is to hear a man looking for a pat on the back, not not someone that's apologetic for the bungled rollout that he announced and he planned. And you can hear it in the, I guess, the groundwork that's being done for another federal election. Well, don't worry about that stuff. We got it done. 
We're one of the most vaccinated countries in the world, but uh, your essay in the monthly, The Mistakes, actually makes the case that these things actually still matter. Why do they matter? Oh, they matter in so many ways. I mean, let's never forget that the, the Delta outbreak that led to the Sydney lockdown and the Melbourne lockdown and the Canberra lockdown happened when uh, a limo driver who was transporting foreign air crews from the airport to a private hotel, that unvaccinated limo driver who wasn't required to wear a mask in New South Wales got COVID and spread it around the state and in turn spread it around the East Coast. All of the lockdowns, the last ones, were 100% avoidable. When Scott Morrison announced his ambitious, I'm going to do it by October agenda, he didn't just say he'll do it fast. He said we'd do frontline border workers first. He said we'd do the most vulnerable people first. Well, the guy in a car <laughs> with the overseas air crew was not vaccinated and not required to wear a mask. And if we had a built standalone quarantine centres, we wouldn't have even needed private limo drivers to take the most, the, the biggest risk we had, foreign air crews, and move them into our CBD hotel. And so trying to quantify the economic social costs uh, the, of those mistakes or that inability to take responsibility, it's difficult to quantify in totality, but it's important that it's factored into the way people think about voting for this government again, because who knows what the next crisis might deliver. And if this is a template for how they're going to behave and how they're going to respond and what they consider in their political interests relative to their responsibilities to act on behalf of the wider public, these things are going to matter. Oh, absolutely. And let's be clear, our job as voters in a democracy is to vote for people who we think are offering the best plan and then to evaluate how effectively that plan was implemented. Now, Scott Morrison wasn't elected on a plan to tackle COVID. Like, you can't blame him for the outbreak. But he was responsible for deciding that we shouldn't build dedicated quarantine hubs. He was the guy that said we're at the head of the vaccination queue, which we weren't. He was the guy that said we'd all be vaccinated by October. So, yes, I think we have to hold him to account because if we don't, we're sort of saying that that's good enough. And whether it's climate change or whether it's implementing the recommendations of the Hain Royal Commission into banks, like <laughs> which we haven't done, you know, when people say they're going to do things in public life and don't do them, either we as voters need to change our vote and behave accordingly, or we say, fine, good enough, we don't really care. Well, if we don't care whether those who lead us, who represent us, who govern for us, if we don't care how they do, then well, we really shouldn't complain when they do badly. I don't want to take us back to the start of 2021 because it's been a shit year, but we're going to do it. We're going to have to do it <laughs> to go back there. So the phrase that's most associated with Scott Morrison at the start of the year when people came back from holidays and most of Australia had enjoyed a COVID-free summer, we felt like we had COVID zero was kind of there. Victoria and New South Wales where there'd been problems, it wasn't a problem. It's not a race. We don't need to get uh, on, on the fast track to being vaccinated. It'll happen when it happens. Where did that phrase start to percolate up from the Prime Minister? Well, literally New Year's Day 2021, the Prime Minister on the front page of the Sydney Morning Herald said uh, that he would rather a slow, safe rollout than a quick one of the vaccine. And he actually said that if that meant longer lockdowns and longer border restrictions, so be it. That was literally his New Year's welcome message to Australians in 2021. In March, he took his it's not a race line out for a few laps around the press gallery, and he said it repeated times. Uh, it wasn't an accident. 
And then later in the year when he was challenged on it's not a race, he said, oh, I wasn't talking about the rollout. I wasn't, oh, you've misunderstood me. I was talking about we shouldn't rush the approvals of the vaccinations, but that's just not true. At the first time he said it's not a race, the AstraZeneca and Pfizer vaccine has already been approved. And, and that's a really common theme of what happened last year. Scott Morrison just keeps changing the goalposts and saying, oh, you misunderstood. Oh, you thought I meant that. No, that's not what I meant. That's on you. And, you know, really he's been gaslighting the nation. When you actually go back and read everything he said in order, it's it's quite clear. He just kept changing his mind after he'd failed. He took that brutal task on reading everything in order that he said in order to, to, <laughs> to write the essay, The Mistakes for the Monthly. And one of the points you reach is that three months in, we had a target, I think, in late April, was it not, to be 75% vaccinated? No, so, no. For, so, it, it, so 4 million people. Three be- months in, we were going to be 4 million vaccinated. We were less than a million at that point. So we'd underperformed by 75% of the target he'd set for himself. How did he then pass the target? What was he saying about the target now that we had nowhere Well, at the time, he just kept saying, don't worry so much about that. Don't worry so much about that. But, you know, which, again, is just a feature of of sort of Scott Morrison's approach to accountability. Don't take what I say seriously. You know, that's yesterday. Don't you you realise we've moved on since then? But, of course, if we had have been on track for vaccinations, according to Scott Morrison's plan, that limo driver probably would have been vaccinated. And if he wasn't vaccinated and required to be vaccinated because he was frontline, far more people in Sydney would have been vaccinated, which means it would have spread more slowly through the community. So the idea that, oh, let's not look back at the failure. Well, if we don't, how will we ever do better? You know, how, how will we plan and understand? Because let's be clear, in Australia today, Indigenous communities, uh, uh, the, uh, the disabled population, a lot of people in vulnerable groups are less likely to be vaccinated than the Australian average. While Scott Morrison started the year saying, we're going to do this right, we're going to vaccinate the vulnerable groups first, just to be crystal clear, we did the opposite. <laughs> right? We accidentally vaccinated high-income earners and some of the most privileged people in the country first, and we're still now trying to get the disadvantaged groups to catch up. And you write about that in the essay. You talk about Joey's school in Sydney, one of the more privileged schools in Sydney, and also Qantas setting up its own vaccine Pfizer universe for its people as well. So there were organisations that had access and privilege and power as a sort of microcosm of how Australia works and got it done. Do you have a look into how that happened? Well, it's amazing. There's no commentary on it at all. So, yes, Qantas wrote to all of their staff. And, by the way, you know, good on them for sorting the problem. I don't have a mo- I don't have a problem with what they did. I just can't believe that the prime minister couldn't get the limo drivers who were moving <laughs> the the most dangerous people in the country around, or couldn't get the disabled population vaccinated when Qantas offered vaccination to all their staff and their housemates with Pfizer early in 2021 when target populations couldn't get their hands on it. So Qantas managed to sort it out. And yes, one of the most expensive private schools in Sydney, Joey's, got 163 boarding school students vaccinated with Pfizer way before young people were even eligible for Pfizer on on the sort of the, the, the public scheme. And then when they were caught doing this, this is obscene, they blamed Indigenous people. They said, oh, it was because some of the borders were Indigenous 
we accidentally got all the kids vaccinated when really we were just trying to get the Indigenous kids vaccinated. But, and this is important, under freedom of information requests, we know that's not true. The abs, that's just not true. The plan was always to vaccinate all of the borders and some powerful public servant made that happen for Joey's, but people in disadvantaged Indigenous communities like, well, Kenya didn't have that patronage. They didn't have a champion pushing for them and they missed out. The Morrison approach often is also to mitigate political risk to him as the foundation stone for any decision that he makes for his government. And the approach to quarantine was a perfect example of that. So I think it's under Section 51 of the Constitution, the Commonwealth has the powers for quarantine in Australia. And previously we've seen it when it comes to biosecurity, they're all over it. But in this case, he was quite happy to cede it to the states and let hotel quarantine be the reservoir for that, even though it was poorly equipped to deal with the the issues around ventilation and security for the people that were staying there. How did he manage to convince the states and everyone else that this was the way to do it? Well, he didn't have to convince them. He just refused to do it. So what all the states did was come up with a stopgap measure. I mean, it's important to note that at the beginning, Scott Morrison wasn't even in favour of a hotel quarantine. He was happy for people to try and quarantine at home. So he got kind of dragged into all of these positions. But yeah, he knew that if he built uh, federal quarantine facilities and there was a breakout, it'd be blamed on him. So, so he was kind of covering himself there. But also this prime minister, this government never sees the public sector as a solution to a big problem. So rather than just step in and fix a problem directly, you know, maybe like build more hospitals or build more schools, this government just loves to subsidise some form of private activity wherever they can. So uh, he didn't want to do it in the first place. Uh, He wanted to avoid responsibility if it went wrong, but also I think he was very happy to kind of pay the private sector to do it even though it clearly would have been safer to do it in dedicated facilities. Well, we know it was because Howard Springs in the Northern Territory, even though it's only a small sample in terms of the number of people that went through there, perfect example of how you do it in a a climate that allows people to move around outside a little bit, but they're isolated, they've got uh, uh, biosecurity around there so people can't get in and out despite maybe one or two idiots trying. And it had a pretty good batting record. Uh, it batted 100%. There was no known cases of an outbreak coming from Howard Springs. And and let's imagine that we accidentally built high-quality housing near our airports and then, you know, we fixed COVID in, in the next year or two and it's all gone. Oh, we'd just be stuck with some good-quality housing that could be used for all sorts of things, <laughs> whether it's housing homeless people, uh, offering uh, housing to people fleeing domestic violence. It's not like there's a surplus of cheap housing in Australia. So even if the argument was we might not need it for long, well, A, we should plan ahead. I mean, we have a defence force whose whole point is that we hope we don't use it. It's okay if we're prepared for these outbreaks that happen again in the future, but I can think of plenty of things we could have done with with a housing stock. And quantify the consequences of using hotel quarantine, which the Prime Minister said at the time was 99.99% safe, and then revised to what's 99.5% safe, trying to sort of pass the idea that, yeah, it's not quite as safe as being absolutely watertight, but it's pretty damn good. Yes. You do the numbers on this in your essay, and, you know, it's actually quite scary when when you're talking about the – 
the gap that that opens up and the possibility for infection and the trouble that it can cause. That's right. I mean, 99%, 99 99.9%, 99.99%, they all sound about the same. They're kind of big numbers, you know. Big numbers, pretty reliable. (laughs) But that's that's not how it works. So 99% means uh, 1% failure rate, 1 in 100. 99.9% 99.9% failure rate means there'd be one failure per thousand. And 99.99% would mean one failure in every 10,000 people. And and the Prime Minister kind of used these numbers a bit interchangeably. Uh, but to be clear, it turned out that it was around 99.5%, which again, sounds like a big number, but what that means is uh, 40 times more outbreaks are likely to happen than if it was 99.9. And if we know about the exponential growth of the disease because of its it, just how infectious it is, yep. that, that is bushfire. Well, that's right. But also just think about if you've got 10,000 people coming into Australia over the course of a year, do you want one outbreak or 50? Like, you know, these are big... Like the, it makes a big difference whether you've got to have 50 lockdowns or one. So the whole, oh, is it 99.9 or 99.99 or just 99.5? Again, that's the Prime Minister framing the debate as, come on, I'm doing pretty good, was really would have said, do you want to see one in 100 people getting out or one in 1,000 or one in 10,000 or none? like in Howard Springs. So again, the framing of it, everyone's heads explode when you start doing the 0.99s. I get it. You know, as an economist, we live with decimal places, but we also know how to explain things to people so they do understand. And saying to people, there's a 1 in 10,000 risk, and saying to someone, there's a 50 in in 10,000 risk, they get that. And this Prime Minister was willing to take a much bigger risk than we needed to take. Looking back on it, why do you think there wasn't the same level of political scrutiny, media scrutiny on that difference, on the risk-taking that was inherent in a decision like that, the fact that the government, the federal government wasn't prepared to step up and take its responsibility seriously when it came to quarantining. I think we just have very low expectations uh, these days of, of our governments. And, and all it takes, unfortunately, is some belligerence or confidence uh, and, and the Prime Minister was just never really challenged on a lot of his key things. Like, let's be clear, we weren't first in the queue, okay? We weren't anywhere near first in the queue. Uh, we were nowhere near on target for uh, the rate of the vaccinations, and there's no doubt that Howard Springs showed we could have high expectations of 100% safe quarantine, but we went with a leaky hospital, a hotel regime. And also tens of thousands of Australians stuck overseas, unable to come home because the quarantine system simply wasn't prepared to step up and cope with their natural uh, desire and their right, really, to come home and uh, sort of shelter this pandemic where they belong. So, you know, you ask, why didn't we ask hard questions? I guess that's the whole point of the essay is to remind people that underneath the flood of kind of fear and hope that we all kind of dealt with every day, the normal rules of politics just weren't applying. And as a consequence, catastrophic errors just weren't even discussed. I mean, let's let's not forget the debacle of the COVID Safe app that we all kind of downloaded because we were told it was really important. That never worked. Like millions of dollars just absolutely wasted that all had to be replicated by the states. I mean, once upon a time, that would have been a hanging offence for a minister 
But these days, oh, come on. No, we did our best. Just didn't actually achieve anything. So whether it was big errors like refusing Pfizer's offer to be first in the queue or small errors like designing an app that just didn't work and, and never admitting it didn't work. Like to this day, there's yet to be an apology for it. There wasn't scrutiny as usual. Let's talk about the queue and the vaccine rollout. AstraZeneca was the uh, the preferred vaccine for Australia. We didn't take up the Pfizer offer in time to be uh, up and running in early January. What are the consequences of that? Uh, look, the, the AstraZeneca vaccine was a good vaccine, but the, the advice that every government around the world got was don't bet the house on one vaccine. Like no one knew early in the, in the, in the race either which vaccine would work or how durable the effectiveness would be. Like by definition, we, we didn't know how long the vaccine would remain effective for. No one could have known whether it would stay effective for 12 months or, or dissipate because it hadn't been in anyone's arm that long. So all of the advice that the Australian government got and other governments got was spread your risk. But we didn't. You know, we really doubled down on AstraZeneca. And it wasn't just Pfizer, Moderna as well. We were very late to the party on that. And and that turned out to be a catastrophically expensive risk. Again, the, all of those Delta outbreaks in Sydney, Melbourne and Canberra likely could have been avoided if we really had been first in that Pfizer queue. I still don't understand how the government didn't or couldn't follow through on its commitment to vaccinate healthcare, aged care workers, disability care workers at the same time it was vaccinating those populations. Yep. And the stress that put those workers under, who were already under enormous stress as it was, it just screams incompetence to me that that was not done. Or am I missing the detail here that that would say that I'm asking or expecting too much? No, I, exactly. How come? Like, it, it's never really been asked in a repeated way. There's certainly been no expectation the Prime Minister would answer. Uh, and to give you a clear example, it wasn't just the workforce. We found out, thanks to the Royal Commission into Disability Care and thanks to scrutiny in the Senate, that the Health Department had actively decided to take resources away from vaccinating people with disabilities to pour more resources into vaccinating people in aged care. Now, okay, that's a big decision that needed to be made, but it was never communicated. No one ever said to the disability community, by the way, here's what's just happened. So because that supply was constrained, because we hadn't secured enough, even though Scott Morrison would announce another million here, another million there, 10 million, uh, because we were supply constrained, we had to make decisions like let's stop vaccinating people with disabilities so that we can dis uh, so we can vaccinate more people with aged care. The same thing happened in New South Wales. They had to stop. They had to shut down one of their vaccination centres in Newcastle so that they could move more into the hotspots uh, in Western Sydney. Now, again, fine from a triage point of view, you can see why they did that. But if, and it's a big if. <laughs> If Scott Morrison had have actually been first in the queue, delivered on that by taking up Pfizer's offer, we wouldn't have had to put one group or one community in greater risk 
in order to get jabs into the arms of people who were deemed more urgent. One dynamic of the Australian economy that was exposed by all of this was our over-reliance or, you know, the addiction to insecure work. Uh, 30% of the workforce or thereabouts is in insecure work, whether it's casual work, gig jobs or uh, labour hire jobs or the like. And we saw that that could actually be a vector for the disease and, you know, spreading the disease because of the mobility of those workforces and their lack of support from their employers. Do you think there's any real appetite to actually address the nature of insecure work in Australia, not just from a uh, public health perspective now, but just for the fact that we now know that that insecurity is a very dangerous thing to the continuity and well-being of the community as a whole because of the way that it can see work disappear overnight yeah. and suddenly people find themselves in financial distress. Look, I, I think there's a lot more appetite for it in the community. I don't sense any more appetite from the government, but, you know, that's, democracy will play out perhaps. But yeah, I think what happened was a lot of parents and even grandparents realised that their adult kids and grandkids mm. didn't have sick pay, didn't have holiday pay, have never had sick pay, have never had holiday pay. And I think that's something about Australia that – so many of the myths that we still have about ourselves, our sense of who we are and how our workforces work, our myths are dated and they do not engage with the reality that young people in the labour market face. So I think something important that came out of it was a whole bunch of people in their 40s, 50s, 60s and older went, what do you mean 40% of young people don't have sick pay? And that's because they never experienced that themselves in their working life and perhaps had never stopped to ask their kids or grandkids, so what is it like working in the gig economy? And that also reflects through to their inability to get into the housing market yep. or to, to, to get a loan for a car or any of those things that people presume you should be able to do if you're working. Exactly. So I, I, this is my point. I, I think that we've changed radically in Australia in the last couple of decades, but it's all been done through the guise of, you know, making us more competitive or, you know, some bit of a conobabble or nonsense. But what we haven't said is, you know what, we've kind of given up on the idea that everyone gets sick pay and holiday, you know. That, that's an old-fashioned idea. We've moved on. We never really made that announcement. So you can understand why a lot of older people who just take for granted the secure work they've had and the good conditions they've had, they've just taken for granted that other people either had it or it was only a small number of people who didn't. Another point that I think is important is, you know, a whole bunch of infectious diseases that we've kind of learned to manage have been solved collectively. You know, things like tuberculosis, you know, used to kill so many people, polio, and we all benefit from living in a community that doesn't have those diseases. I think what we now need to realise is with new classes of infectious diseases being more likely, we are all going to be better off. Not just me, not just other people who are lucky enough to have secure work with sick pay like I do. We will all be better off if more of us have access to those conditions because the next time we get an outbreak like this, we want people who are sick to stay at home and we don't want people putting off getting vaccinated because they can't take time off, they, they can't afford to lose a shift. And there was no vac vaccine pay that you could take. Yep. And when Labor suggested a $300 payment as a way of encouraging people to offset the time they might lose at work relative to going to get a vaccine, they were laughed off the stage. They were mocked as saying it was an insult to Australians when, of course, for, for, for so many millions of Australians, actually taking time off work to get vaccinated, missing a shift to get vaccinated, 
and running the legitimate risk that after you get vaccinated, you'll have side effects for a day or two. I was quite knocked about by both of my vaccines. I'm glad I had them, but both times for a day or two afterwards, <laughs> I was nowhere near peak performance. And if, if you work casual and you, for example, drive heavy equipment for a living, I, I wouldn't want anyone who felt like I did after they had the jab going to work to drive heavy equipment. But we asked them to go without pay rather than, you know, compensate them for, for doing that. Just to finish, uh, and it's a great read. I should recommend it again. The Monthly, The Mistakes is Richard Dennis's essay in uh, this month's edition of The Monthly, the November edition. People who care about these issues will want to see a change in government. How would you frame a campaign or an idea around a campaign that ordinary people who don't focus in on politics so much aren't as uh, engaged in the issues can understand the consequence of returning a Morrison government? Uh, well, look, what the Morrison government showed is that they were cavalier with our health outcomes, that when they had the choice to be first in the queue, uh, they said, oh, that's a bit expensive. We might wait. We're okay coming in 20th. Uh, when it came to rolling out just the simple administration of services, when it came to rolling out the vaccinations, they weren't very good at it. Well, that doesn't just affect us through COVID. That affects us with everything they promised to do. So democracy thrives on high expectations. It's If we start telling ourselves and each other, oh, everyone's crap, all the parties are the same, they're all hopeless, what we're really saying is government doesn't work. What well, does work? <laughs> right? Here in the ACT, we really knocked it out of the park with our vaccination because our government was prepared and did it well. Uh, and similarly, other countries around the world did much better than we did. So if we tell ourselves, ah, oh, it's okay, then we're settling for second best. And, it, you know, that's fine. If we want second best, we can vote for second best. But if you want high-quality services, you have to vote for people uh, who are promising them, and you can't keep voting for people who promise them and then just don't deliver them. Richard, thanks again for being with us here on The Job. Thank you. Thanks, Francis. This is On The Job with Francis Leach and Sally Rudd. There he is, Richard Dennis, the Chief Economist at the Australia Institute, and uh, talking to me about his contribution to the latest edition of The Monthly about the Morrison government's handling of the COVID-19 pandemic. Great to chat to him once again. He lays it out in graphic detail how bad it's going to be. But, Sally, as you mentioned earlier on, people want to forget, don't they? And you can understand that instinct to just want to move on from the pandemic and just try and embrace a summer of uh, relative freedom, given just how tough it's been. And that shapes up well for the Morrison government in terms of its approach to the election. But they need to be held to account for how it happened because there might be another crisis on the horizon. And if this government is in charge, Again, we've got no confidence that they'll be able to deal with whatever circumstances thrown at them. Yes, and, and the events of the last few weeks have certainly been testament to that. And I'm thinking specifically, you know, the submarines and the trip to Glasgow and the weird haircut that was publicised all over <laughs> all over the press to a slightly lesser extent, but still. And don't forget that the war on the weekend is now over as well because suddenly your electric vehicle is kind of okay and it's going to be able to tow your boat, even though three years ago it wasn't. So, you know, that's just the way these guys roll. The level of gymnastics there to accomplish that backflip was quite remarkable. I think Scott Morrison giving Simone Biles a, a real run for her money there. <laughs> I know who I'd prefer to watch doing the gymnastics and it ain't that 
bloke. Good on you, Sally. Enjoy the rest of your <laughs> week. Uh, we can follow you at Sally Rugg on the socials. That's right, and people can follow you at St. Frankly. And remind people about the campaign that you are running at the moment that people should check out if they are like-minded folks who believe that the Murdoch media is detrimental to the health of our democracy and our civil society. Where can they go to find out more about what they can do to try to change this and, and hold Rupert et al. to account? Yeah, thanks for the plug. So our website is AFMRC. .org.au and those initials stand for Australians for a Murdoch Royal Commission. And right now in this phase of the campaign and the organisation, we're really focused on building power and, you know, building our supporter base, growing our campaign. So if you wanted to head over to the website and sign up, that would be really great. And then the sort of two actions, the two campaign actions that we're focusing on for this first phase of the strategy is we're trying to shift the conversation about Murdoch's media monopoly kind of away from conversations about the market or like which newspaper prefers which premiere. Obviously, the impact on politics is demonstrable and dangerous and something we all care about, but that is pretty, I think, well established. And what the campaign is at the moment trying to do is really make the case that a Royal Commission needs to be set up because the monopoly on the media market owned by Rupert Murdoch causes real significant damage to real-life people. Like the, the harms of climate change denialism and pandemic disinformation have real harms in our communities and the, the racist dog-whistling and vilification of communities or bullying of individuals, like... That's not an academic discussion um, and we see a lot of front pages or Sky News clips that will sort of demonstrate the bad behaviour and we're doing that as well. But what I'm really trying to establish with this phase of the campaign is is finding stories of people who've experienced harm because of what's been um, reported in News Corp or on Sky News and telling those stories because those are the types of stories that I think need to be front and centre um, when we talk about this issue and also hopefully will be the type of people who can be called as witnesses to give their testimony to a Royal Commission. So that's if you're listening and you, you know someone or you have a story of, you know, experiencing harm because of the Murdoch abuse of media power, head to our website and tell me, tell us. <laughs> Share it and build the power. Good on you, Sally. We'll catch you on the next edition of On The Job. You can email us at otjpodcast at protonmail.com with any questions or story ideas and we'll catch you on the next edition of the program. Bye-bye. See you, Sally. Bye. Bye.